0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, calls for justice for Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered one year ago in Saudi Arabia's embassy in Turkey.
1: I think justice for Jamal Khashoggi will be when Mohammed bin Salman is being tried for the crimes that he has committed, including the war crimes in Yemen that he is committing on a daily basis.
0: And this week also marked the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. What is the impact of China's revolution today? We speak to Brian Becker of The Answer Coalition.
2: China has not been overthrown and has instead grown into a mighty counterforce that challenges the ability of the U.S. to carry out hegemonic policies
0: uh, all over the world. These stories, voices, and much more coming up. Back up,
3: back up. We want freedom, freedom. All these prison profiteers, freedom, freedom, freedom. Back up, back up. We want freedom, freedom. All these
2: prison profiteers.
0: Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum. In an interview this week with The Gray Zone, journalist Anya Parampel detailed how actions by the Trump-backed right-wing opposition in Venezuela may lead to the liquidation of Venezuela's most valuable foreign asset, Citgo. Parampel said that Citgo is in danger because its assets in the United States were seized and turned over to a right-wing gang connected to Trump's appointed president, Juan Guaido, who represents no material government in Caracas.
1: That is allowed for, in the very near future perhaps, Citgo to be completely liquidated, to cease to exist as we know it, and for companies like Exxon and Crystalx to benefit financially from the Trump coup. If they can't win support on the ground in Venezuela and they're never going to actually change the government, they could at least steal all of Venezuela's assets and essentially turn it over to U.S. corporations.
0: We will link to Parampil's interview and article at the Gray Zone on our website on thegroundshow.org. Well wishes continued to pour into presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders following his successful heart procedure on Tuesday night. And Sanders immediately cited his surgery in his case for Medicare for All. He tweeted Wednesday, quote, I'm feeling good. I'm fortunate to have good health care and great doctors and nurses helping me to recover. None of us know when a medical emergency might affect us and no one should fear going bankrupt if it occurs. Medicare for all, end quote. Sanders had two stents inserted Tuesday night to treat an artery blockage. Roughly 1.8 million stent procedures happen in the United States every year, wrote Sanders speechwriter David Sirota in the campaign's Burn Notice newsletter. In climate news, a new report says that the Trump administration's attacks on science have reached a crisis point, and that, quote, our government, research, and data are being increasingly manipulated for political gain, end quote. Proposals for Reform, Volume 2, is the second report from the National Task Force on Rule of Law and Democracy, a nonpartisan group housed at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. The new report details the dangers of President Donald Trump's war on science, and that report is at BrennanCenter.org. On the streets in D.C. this week, hundreds of janitors marched through downtown during Tuesday's rush hour, vowing to strike if they don't win a contract with fair wages by October 15th. The march by members of 32BJ included a stop at the White House, where 32BJ's Vice President Jaime Contreras shouted, Trump, shame on you. Most of the locals' members are immigrants who Contreras said the Trump administration is treating like animals. Negotiations began on September 12th for a contract covering more than 4,000 janitors in Washington, D.C., 4,000 in Northern Virginia, more than 1,500 in Montgomery County, Maryland, 600 in Baltimore, and hundreds of new members of the union in Loudoun County, Virginia, and Prince George's County, Maryland. And finally, five prison abolition activists were arrested in front of the Department of Justice on Tuesday after two in their group chained themselves atop ladders that they used to block vehicle entrances at the agency. The activists were continuing their demand that the department file a promised lawsuit addressing human rights violations in Alabama prisons. The department released a report in April detailing ongoing violent and unsafe conditions in Alabama, including murder, assault, rape, drug overdoses, and lack of mental and medical care. May Azad, a spokeswoman for the D.C. Prison Abolition Coalition, said that the groups will continue to protest until the DOJ files through and takes legal action. Our first demand as soon as we got there was that we wanted to speak with someone from William Barr's office or really anyone from the DOJ who could give us answers as to why there's been zero action. And uh, we wanted them to set a date as to or just publicly, yeah, publicly set a date as to when they're going to file that. Suit and no one came out to talk to us. There was someone from the U.S. Marshal's office, um, which was the closest, but they weren't trying to negotiate. The coalition also has demands for D.C., including ending all collaboration between the D.C. jail and ICE, and that's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, passing the Second Look Amendment, which expands the opportunity for resentencing juveniles, and restoring local control of D.C. parole. On the Ground contacted the Department of Justice for comment, but the department did not respond before our deadline. The D.C. Prison Abolition Coalition attracts a wide variety of people to the cause. One mother, who came from Virginia, told On the Ground that her focus is on how the prison pipeline starts in schools, with even the youngest children being restrained and put in solitary confinement.
4: My name is Jennifer Tidd, and I'm with the International Coalition Against Restraint and Seclusion. We've combined with many countries. On social media, we have over 45 countries on six continents now. Basically, disabled children are being mistreated worldwide. In our schools in the United States, we are locking kids up in seclusion cells. We are using dangerous forms of restraint. Since 2009, over 100 kids have been killed in prone restraint holds. That's the hold that was used on Eric Garner that killed him. The most highly targeted group are disabled children. The second most highly targeted are black boys. It's almost all boys that are targeted. If you are a black disabled boy, you're going to be in the number one category. When you you said the hold that killed Eric Garner, you mean when he was down on the ground with people on his back? Yeah, they had them face down. A prone restraint hold is face down on the ground. Law enforcement use it, they use it in psych wards, they use it in schools. And we're trying to get that banned. In Virginia, the Department of Education has now done a recommendation that the governor hasn't signed yet that will ban prone restraint in Virginia schools, but it needs to be banned. There's there's federal legislation called um, Keeping All Kids Safe Act, H.R. 7124, that will ban dangerous forms of restraint, like strapping children to chairs and boards. That's mechanical restraint. Supine restraint is on the floor, on your back. And prone restraint is the, the most dangerous one from which a lot of kids have been killed. And then, of course, seclusion cells, and that's locking children up in solitary confinement. Many kids are locked up hundreds of times a year, and it's traumatizing. I mean, studies show it's, it's just like locking up prisoners in solitary confinement. It's traumatizing. It's used a lot on children with behavioral challenges like autism and ADHD, but it, it actually exacerbates the behaviors. It has no educational or therapeutic value. It's a punishment. So, I mean, I know a lot
0: of attention has been placed on the, you know, rightfully so, the children in cages on the border and conditions that people are being imprisoned who are attempting to uh, migrate, seek asylum in the country. But one of the reasons why I'm down here today is to not forget the issues of the way we imprison people or detain people who are already here who are citizens. So, to me, I see the issue connected to and that's why I'm here because I
4: see that they're talking about solitary confinement 65% of juvenile prisons are special ed children that yeah so it is it is there is definitely a school to prison pipeline it starts with restraints if they live through that then it goes to seclusion and then it goes to suspensions and then expulsions and then a lot of the kids end up in prison. And so if you want to stop what's happening at prison, if you cut it off at in the school, teach kids to read. You know, they just passed that bill because more than fifty percent of prison inmates have dyslexia and they can't read. Why aren't we teaching them to read at school? These issues intersect clearly. Right. We want to unite with groups who are looking at prison reform, who are looking at the treatment of prisoners, we want to prevent them from going to prison. And we feel that you know, stopping the dangerous restraints closing the seclusion cells, actually getting kids the education that they need if they have special needs or um, uh, emotional disabilities, autism, ADHD, a lot of these things that have behavioral challenges. If they get the help they need at school, they won't end up in prison.
0: The Coalition Against Restraint and Seclusion can be reached on Facebook and Twitter. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Voices on the one-year anniversary of the murder of journalist Jamel Khashoggi. Stay with us.
3: There's a whole lot of jiving going on.
5: My name is Robert McCaw, I'm the National Government Affairs Director with the Council on American Islamic Relations and I'll be emceeing today's press conference. Today marks the one year anniversary of Jamal Khashoggi's murder in the Saudi Arabian Consulate in Turkey, in Istanbul. It was at 1.14pm in Turkey on October 2nd that Khashoggi was last seen entering the consulate alive. In November 2018, the Washington Post reported that the CIA had concluded Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the assassination of Khashoggi with high confidence. Khashoggi's murder continues to impact the press freedoms and human rights in Saudi Arabia and impact the state of U.S.-Saudi relations. I'm joined here today by Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin American Muslims for Palestine, National Policy Director Osama Abu Sheid, Nonviolence International Human Rights Attorney Jonathan Katab, and Hassan Al Taib, Middle East Policy Lead at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. I want to open this moment with a moment of silence for Jamal Khashoggi. Again, one year ago, he walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to obtain paperwork so he could marry his Turkish fiance, never to be seen again. On the anniversary of his murder, we are a reminder to the world, to the United States and to Saudi Arabia, that we have not yet achieved justice for Jamal. Khashoggi was a man who was a reporter, a rights activist, who believed in the freedom of people, the press and in calling for accountability and reform in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. He's now a martyr for the cause of free speech and reform in the Middle East and around the world. President Trump's willful indifference to the murder of an American resident by a U.S. ally is a shameful reminder that some in power will always choose economic opportunity, the sale of arms and oil over human life and freedom. We now know an assassination team was dispatched by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, to lay in wait in the consulate where he was lured under false pretenses and assaulted, tortured, brutally murdered, and dissolved in acid to hide that crime. His last words captured on audio were, I cannot breathe, he was butchered alive. Last October, the U.N. Special Rapporteur Agnes Kalamarad determined Khashoggi was a victim of deliberate, premeditated execution and extrajudicial killing for which the state of Saudi Arabia is responsible under international law. Turkish intelligence and the CIA both concluded with high confidence that Khashoggi's murder was ordered by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. In opposition to the White House, the United States Senate has unanimously passed a resolution that held MBS responsible for the death of Khashoggi. In the U.S. House of Representatives, the bipartisan Saudi Arabia Human Rights and Accountability Act of 2019 was also added as an amendment to the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act. That is now something the Senate needs to agree to in conference committee. This amendment would order the administration to submit to Congress a public report presenting all relevant evidence, a full list of those who are believed to be involved in Khashoggi's murder, and to slap visa restrictions on those involved. These sanctions can only be lifted when Saudi authorities stop the torture and imprisonment of women's rights activists. Accountability is achievable. It's this administration, President Trump, who delays and denies justice. I now have two goals in the next year to achieve justice for Jamal. That we demand accountability from the government and we get that report and that we hold MBS accountable and that we also have this street where we stand here now, renamed Khashoggi Way, as a reminder to the Saudi government that you can kill the messenger, but you cannot kill his message. With that, speaking next is Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Thank you.
1: It's a sad occasion coming together to remember the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But I think it's important we also take a moment to just look at this place and think of it for what it is, which is a place of evil. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the government of Saudi Arabia, is an evil government. Mohammed bin Salman, who was celebrated two years ago when he came to the United States and was vetted by our officials in Congress, in the White House, in the business world, as a reformer, he is an evil man who belongs in The Hague. And I think justice for Jamal Khashoggi will be when Mohammed bin Salman is being tried for the crimes that he has committed, including the war crimes in Yemen that he is committing on a daily basis. I also think it's horrible that President Trump, instead of distancing himself from Mohammed bin Salman, has tightened the embrace in the last year. And this is a year not only after the Grizzly murder, but a year in which he has thrown women activists into prison and tortured them. A year in which human rights lawyers have been thrown into prison. A year in which anybody who dissents against his repressive rule has been thrown into prison. Donald Trump has not only vetoed the bills that we have helped to send to Congress to say no more support for the Saudi war in Yemen, but he has also helped to rehabilitate Mohammed bin Salman on the world stage. So I am here today as representative of Code Pink to announce an increase that we will do in a campaign to boycott Saudi Arabia. This includes putting pressure on businesses to stop their business deals with the Saudi regime. There is a gathering coming up at the end of October known as Davos in the Desert. It is said that Jared Kushner is going to be leading it with a delegation of U.S. businesses including BlackRock, Citicorp, and other Wall Street firms. We are calling on these companies not to go to Davos in the desert. We are calling on the G20, who have said that their next meeting is going to be in Saudi Arabia. How horrible is that? They must not do their next meeting in Saudi Arabia. We are calling on the think tanks in Washington, D.C., on the Ivy League schools in this country to stop taking money dirty money, blood money from the Saudi regime. We are calling on the PR firms who earn millions of dollars every month from trying to whitewash the crimes of this government to stop representing the Saudi regime. And we are calling on entertainers who are part of this whole cover-up to say Saudi Arabia is reforming. Look. We now have singers coming in and concerts. We call on those very entertainers to not go entertain in Saudi Arabia, to follow in the footsteps of Nicki Minaj, who said because of the repression against gay people, against women and violations of human rights in general, she would not perform in Saudi Arabia. So this is a message to all of those out there who continue to take blood money from Saudi Arabia. The time has come to cut your ties with this bloody regime. And certainly a message for Donald Trump, while he himself is under the spotlight, to sever his ties with the bloody regime. And let's hope that next year we can come back and say the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia Is in
5: The Hague. Thank you. Thank you, Medea. Next speaking is American Muslims for Palestine National Policy Director Dr. Osama Abu Sherd.
6: Good afternoon. A few days ago, in an interview with CBS News, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman claimed that he takes full responsibility as the leader of Saudi Arabia for the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government. However, he still denies that he personally ordered and directed the murder murder as confirmed by the Turkish and the American intelligence agencies as well as UN officials. MBS is a proven war criminal and a brutal dictator. No matter how hard he tries to disguise his ugly face behind the claims of reform, the fact speaks for themselves. We see them in Yemen, where he destroyed the country, massacred its people, causing famine, uh, f- uh, famine and reviving diseases that we thought were not God. Yet, he is unable to win the war. In Saudi Arabia, he cracked down on women and human rights activists, uh, as well as scholars. He even persecuted members of his own royal family and business people under the the pretext of fighting corruption, while he himself is the most corrupt figure in Saudi Arabia today. Moreover, although he claims to take moral responsibility for the murder, murder of Khashoggi, no one has been prosecuted for the crime in Saudi Arabia and until today. No one has been tried. No one has been convicted. And after a year since the crime, Hashim body is still missing. Until today, they claim they don't know where they dispose the body. This shows the true nature of the regime of MBS, for the true nature of the regime MBS has established. In his view, reform means tightening his grip over power while baiting the international community by presenting himself as a reformist. We know though of one person who took the bait willingly, and that is the man who MBS cares the most about, the president, President Donald Trump. But Trump is the enabler of MBS. He does not hide his admiration for tyrants. In fact, he might be envying them for having absolute power with disregard to their people and the institutions. He never shied away from shielding MBS from the consequences of his crime. Trump's argument was that Khashoggi is not an American citizen and that the kingdom buys a lot of US weapons. The same weapons that are wrecking havoc in Yemen and the same weapons that are murdering Yemeni women and children today. As low as this argument by the president that Khashoggi is not an American citizen, maybe it is time to remind him that MBS jails American citizens like Dr. Walid Iftahi, who was arrested back in 2017 with confirmed reports that he's been subjected to torture until today. The president does not see this or tend to turn a a blind eye to this, and he does not care. After all, why should he care if he himself is threatening a civil war in the United States if he is going to be impeached and removed by Congress. After one year, justice is is yet to find its way in Khashoggi's case. Justice requires that MBS have his day before the ICC for the war crimes he committed and is still committing and not to be treated as an international, as, as a world leader as he is being treated today. One last point that I want to make. If you remember one year ago, the Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul claimed that their surveillance cameras weren't working. So I want to give you the good news. Since we're standing out standing outside, no one should worry because they're not video recording our press conference here according to their claims. The bad news, if anyone walk in, bad for you because no one will have evidence that you walked in according to their claims. Everyone knows that the Saudis are lying. Everyone knows that these cameras are working, these cameras working. Everyone knows that, that the Saudis are lying and they're finding a president who's receptive to their deception because he's no less crooked than MBS. Thank you. Thank you very much.
5: Next, speaking is Nonviolence International Human Rights Attorney Jonathan Kitab. Thank you very much.
7: We are gathered here on what is probably a very sad occasion. But it's also a very positive time for us to remember. That the language, the values, the principles, and the institutions of human rights and international law are becoming stronger and stronger every day. Even the Saudi regime and the other Arab regimes openly talk as if they believe in reform, as if they believe in democracy, as if they believe in granting rights to everyone. Even the Prince himself, the number one suspect in this gruesome crime, is willing to say openly that he is shocked by the crime that took place under his authority and that he is trying to prevent it from happening again and bringing those responsible for judgment. Now, this creates a paradox. A paradox where people like us, who believe in human rights and freedom, seem to be winning precisely at the time when we seem to be losing and weak and defeated. We are not defeated. We are winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the entire world. The ones who are losing are the ones who are the criminals, the human rights violators, the ones who know that despite all their power and might, their day may well come. Not only will history find them guilty, but they may even be actually brought to justice during their lifetime. This is really the good news that we must keep that hope alive. We also have our task at hand. We need to bridge the gap between the values and the principles that everybody increasingly is accepted and the gruesome reality on the ground that these rights are being violated. We need to redouble our efforts so that those currently today in jail can be released and those currently in power today can be deposed and brought to justice. This is not an easy fight. It's a continuing fight which we must fight with the weapons of light against the weapons of darkness and against the forces of darkness. This is where the press, this is where civil society institutions, this is where the courts and the lawyers and international law comes in. And this is where ordinary individuals can also participate through boycotts, as we heard through divestment of corporations that are involved in this gruesome uh, affair, and through sanctions against the criminals who are carrying out these actions. BDS are really tactics. They are weapons of light against the forces of darkness. So whoever the evil ones are, and wherever the violations occur, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, in Palestine, in Kashmir, and everywhere, the universal human rights should be upheld, and those who are violating them should be brought to justice. This is our job, and that's what we must do. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Next, speaking, we have Hassan Al Taib. Middle East Policy Lead at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Thank you.
8: Thanks. Thank you all for being here today. A year ago, Jamal Khashoggi walked into a Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey and disappeared. And over the past year, the official story from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia changed more times than I can count. In a 60 Minutes interview over the weekend though, Mohammed bin Salman said that he was responsible as the leader of Saudi Arabia, but at the same time, he denied having any involvement. How could I possibly keep track of three million people that work for our government? Anybody who knows anything about Saudi Arabia doesn't buy this story. The international community doesn't buy this story. The US Senate does not buy this story. The story about Khashoggi uncovered another often untold story in America. The story of the forgotten war in Yemen, and U.S. participation in that war, and I think it's fair to say that Khashoggi's murder did what the death of over a hundred thousand Yemeni children under the age of five who died from hunger and disease could not do. That being getting the U.S. media and Americans to pay attention to human rights abuses by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, at home and abroad. The hypocritical nature of the mainstream coverage is especially painful for so many people up here and so many people out in the community, myself included, who have been for years trying to bring attention to the suffering of Yemeni men, women, and children. How many deaths will it take before investing in Saudi Arabia becomes a problem? Or human rights only matter when a prominent figure is the subject of this kind of brutality? For the past five years, the United States has backed the Saudi-UAE coalition's war in Yemen and have helped create the world's worst humanitarian crisis on the planet, leaving 14 million people on the brink of famine, 1.3 million cases of cholera. Saudi Arabia and the Emirates have blockaded the ports of Yemen, cutting off the flow of food, fuel, medicine, and clean water. They have done airstrikes on schools, hospitals, weddings. They've done airstrikes on economic and agricultural infrastructure. They've been using starvation as a weapon and causing the collapse of the entire Yemeni economy, their healthcare and educational systems. Mohammed bin Salman has proven himself to be a ruthless dictator and monarch, not the progressive reformer that he tries to pretend that he is, and that so many people in the West have gone along with. Even now, he's trying to give his public image a facelift, going on 60 minutes, or, you know, paying millions of dollars to lobbyists in D.C., and paying money to think tanks to make sure that the Saudi image is kept up. But despite the aimless Yemen war being unwinnable in conventional terms, despite the illegality as... This war was not authorized by Congress, and despite the astounding number of civilian casualties in this reckless and ruthless bombing campaign, Trump has given Mohammed bin Salman a blank check to keep this going. In the past year, much has changed, though. Khashoggi's murder shed light on the Forgotten War and helped people open their eyes to the suffering in Yemen. And while the situation for Yemenis remains very bleak, I think there's still reason to believe in peace in Yemen. I was elated when Congress made history this year and passed the Yemen War Powers Resolution for the first time in 45 years. Mm -hmm. By invoking the War Powers Act, Congress put pressure on the Trump administration and by Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and the whole coalition to stop mid-air refueling of Saudi warplanes. It also helped bring the sides to the peace table and agree on a ceasefire in Hodeidah, Yemen's largest port and main supply line of aid to millions of people. And while that ceasefire is fragile, the suffering in Yemen remains catastrophic. I think that this effort by Congress and the activists you see here today has helped millions of Yemenis. But there's more to do despite trump's veto of sj res 7 in april congress has another historic opportunity in the national defense authorization act through house senate joint conference negotiations there's legislation in there that could cut off all weapons sales and logistical support to the coalition and stop spare parts transfers to the coalition and we can finally bring an end to our participation in this brutal unjust, illegal war, and finish what we started with the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Congress has the power to end our complicity, and they must use that power to end this war and bring an end to the war in Yemen, and to bring justice to Jamal Khashoggi. Thank you. Thank you very
6: much.
3: Say hello. There are men who think they built this world and can destroy it. They are puppet pulling missiles on the toys.
0: This is on the ground. On the ground Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Aviram. Well. Tuesday, October 1st marked the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And joining me to discuss the anniversary is Brian Becker, national coordinator of the Answer Coalition, co-host of the radio show Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio, and contributor to a book I've been reading, China Revolution and Counter-Revolution, published by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thank
2: you, Mr. Great pleasure to be here.
0: So, I wanted to have some acknowledgement on the show about the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China. I don't hear anybody talking about the colonial past. I don't hear anybody talking about what China endured before before its revolution and before the establishment of the People's Republic
2: Esther, I think that you are starting at the right place because the Chinese Revolution, which was the culmination of a 27-year-long civil war between the Communist Party led by Mao Zedong and others against the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang led by Chiang Kai-shek, was, yes, partly a socialist revolution and partly an anti-feudal revolution, But in the main, and perhaps its most striking feature, was that it was a national liberation movement against colonialism and semi-colonialism. In fact, it's noteworthy that at the very first day that the revolution took power, on October 1st, 1949, 70 years ago, Mao Zedong addressed this assembled throng of, hundreds of thousands, maybe more, in Tiananmen Square, in Beijing. And he said, China has stood up. China has stood up. And it's so important to recognize what he means by that. He wasn't saying China is now communist. He wasn't saying China is now socialist. He was saying China has stood up, meaning that the century of humiliation, as the Chinese called it, whereby their country was divided by West European colonial empires and then joined by the United States late in the game. That humiliating period where China was subjugated by foreign powers, the time period in which Hong Kong was stolen from China by British imperialism as a punishment because the Chinese had resisted India's demand to import opium and make the Chinese people in the millions opium addicts so that Britain could finance its colonial project in India because China had tried to stand up uh, Britain stole Hong Kong the country was humiliated the country was partitioned and divided so 1949 represents the rupture with the past the beginning of the period where China has stood up. And and true enough today, 70 years later, and as a consequence of this momentous revolution, and only as a consequence of this momentous revolution, China not only stood up then, but stands up today, and has emerged from this horrible legacy of poverty and underdevelopment and colonialism to be the second largest economy in the world, And at the same time has, according to the UN's own statistics, lifted perhaps three to four hundred million human beings out of poverty in the last decades. A social achievement that's unmatched in the modern world.
0: What are the discussions or, I guess, differing opinions about the road that China's taken since that time in terms of its economy? whether it's stayed more steadfast on a socialist or communist road or how it's basically integrated capitalism into its economy?
2: Well, the Chinese government after Mao Zedong died in the mid-1970s made a sharp departure in terms of its economic policy. Under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, Mao's successor, China engaged in what it called the opening up, meaning that China Opened its market so that Western capitalist corporations could invest in China, hire Chinese labor, sell products to a large Chinese domestic market. And the idea of the Chinese Communist Party leadership that engineered that policy was basically this We, the communists who who rule China, will open our doors to Western companies. They can exploit Chinese labor, they can make super profits by setting up shop here, and in exchange, we will be able to capture some of the technology that has been monopolized by the Western imperial countries. Our people will learn, our people will be integrated into the world economy instead of being sanctioned, and as a consequence, we as a nation will have access to technology and other resources that have been denied us and we will grow and we will continue to grow and we will be strong enough to let the wolf in the door, so to speak, but not let the wolf eat us alive. And by that I mean their negotiating posture was that they were strong enough as a state and the market was big enough That the Chinese state would have a a leverage over the Western corporations and insist that that they carry out technology transfer so that Chinese people and Chinese uh, companies and Chinese state-owned enterprises could begin the process of rapid modernization and economic development and that the state was strong enough so that they would not be overthrown by a class of Chinese capitalists who had also been allowed to grow as, as the nexus or the connection between the world capitalist economy and the Chinese market. Here we are 70 years later, there is a capitalist class in China, there's a class stratification in China, and at the same time, the Chinese government has held on to power. And so, uh, meaning the Communist Party has held on to power rather than be overthrown by Western imperialists. Now Donald Trump and the Democrats, his arch rivals in Congress, they are united against China right now because, as Trump said at his speech at the UN General Assembly just last week, uh, when China was integrated into the world economy vis-a-vis the World Trade Organization, the expectations would be, as Trump put it, that China would liberalize its economy What he really means is that the Chinese Communist Party would lose power. And the Democrats and the Republicans now realize that the Communist Party of China's bet, which is that they could integrate into the world capitalist economy without being overthrown by that economy, seems to have paid off. And now there's a lot of hand-wringing and frustration by the establishment here in Washington that China has not been overthrown, and has instead grown into a mighty counterforce that challenges the ability of the U.S. to carry out hegemonic policies uh, all over the world. So yes, there have been sharp changes in political and economic policy, but I would say that even though there's a capitalist property relations have been allowed to grow in China, the Chinese state still dominates the economy through its capacity to control investment and credit. The Chinese state under the leadership of the Communist Party retains that power. So it's a directed development that has a form of regulated capitalism. And the capitalists exist in China, but they do not rule over the the state. The state rules over them. Hmm. So uh, we'll see in China perhaps a number of billionaires be arrested this year. Some of them will be executed. That's a sign that the Chinese government, the Communist Party, and the state are basically still in charge. And unlike the West, and certainly in the United States, you'll never see a billionaire even go to jail, much less be, be executed. Maybe Jeffrey Epstein being the one exception. But the, the Chinese government has embarked on what they call socialism with Chinese characteristics, meaning... There's a strong state sector, the government still controls the way the economy develops by investment and credit authority, and at the same time, there's a strong state sector as well. So it's a mixed economy, but still under the leadership of that party and that class, which made the revolution in 1949.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you is about Hong Kong, because... These protests have been ongoing for months now, and it seems as though the youth-led protests are spurred by anti-mainland China sentiment, but it also seems as though the people living in Hong Kong, in the sphere of the former colonial arrangements, that they aren't doing as well as young people on the mainland, and that a lot of their frustration has to do with that.
2: Indeed. you just have to go past the headlines and beneath them to see there's a lot of problems young people are facing in Hong Kong. You know, the Chinese integrated Hong Kong back into China on the basis of one country, two systems. So Hong Kong still has this kind of unfettered capitalism. And real estate prices have gone through the roof, there's a lot of unemployment, wages are stagnating. The system that they live under is the system of Western capitalism imported by British colonialism into Hong Kong starting in the 1840s. So that is a big part of the issue. Hong Kong's population is divided. There are very huge parts of the population that support the government in mainland China and Beijing. There's another big part of the population that's dissatisfied and has numerous grievances. But what's most interesting is that the Washington Post in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, that constantly vilify mass movements for social justice in the United States, should they do anything that's unlawful, and certainly if they do anything that's, quote, violent, unquote, against the police or against property, have become the chief cheerleaders of this sort of extremist wing of the Hong Kong protest movement who are attacking police with bombs with Molotov cocktails, with steel barriers, with hammers, a beating police unconscious, beating police in large numbers, and during, during it all, I looked at the Washington Post coverage of the one protester who was finally shot the other day, and they call him the teenager who was arrested, or who was shot by the police. Well, if you look at the video, he and his comrades where had one cop down on the ground, they were beating him with hammers and steel barriers. The cop stands up and shoots him. And the coverage in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal is favorable to the demonstrators. So we have to ask ourselves, Esther, if we go to the White House sometime in the next week or two and attack the police with Molotov cocktails and throw bombs at them and beat them over the head with hammers while they're on the ground, what might happen to us i'm quite sure that it wouldn't be one person shot there would be many people shot and we wouldn't be wounded we'd be dead because it's not tolerable and nor would the washington post support uh, demonstrators carrying out violent super violent assaults against police officers i mean look at j20 Twenty. Hundreds of people were facing 10 years in prison just because they were in the presence of some couple people who broke windows uh, so I think what we're seeing in Hong Kong is an effort by the Western media which is trying to basically ultimately topple the government in China the way it wants to topple the government in Iran and Venezuela or Cuba. Looking at these protests as the human material for a possible a weakening of China or a propaganda victory over China or ultimately regime change against China. So Hong Kong is a complicated issue, but what's not complicated is that it had no democracy from 1839 to 1997. It has more democracy now. You can protest now. Large protests are allowed now. And only because of the extreme violent wing of of this protest movement who are really counter-revolutionaries. They're singing the U.S. national anthem and carrying the American flag and the Union Jack. These are the extension of colonial power, but because they're young, they're treated in the Western media as some sort of utopian young student dissenters. Again, this would never be tolerated right here in the United States.
0: Yeah, you asked what would happen here. There would be a boom in business for the D.C. funeral homes. That's what would happen.
2: Exactly. And you you just think what's going on in the black community, uh, in particular, people don't even have to protest to be gunned down. Five hundred plus people have already been murdered by the police in the United States so far this year in 2019. I mean, that's people have to just really think hard when they see all these lovey-dovey articles in the American corporate capitalist media about people who are protesting and beating and assaulting and throwing bombs at police in Hong Kong.
0: Well, you know, I think that a lot of people who maybe listen to this show or who are keeping up to date with protests and resistance I mean they're we're conscious of the fact that those protesters in Hong Kong might be getting attention and support but the protesters in Haiti <laughs> are not getting that kind of coverage the protesters in Honduras right now who have been in the streets for months aren't getting that type of the protesters in Rio in Brazil who are opposing their neo-fascist president they're not getting so it's very clear to us that the the corporate media is doing its normal job of highlighting the the protests and the fake protests or whatever they are that they want to highlight and it's up to us who have a real understanding and having real understanding and solidarity with people around the world to to understand what's really happening
2: i couldn't agree with you more and and it says a lot about the character of The demonstrations in Honduras are progressive, in in Haiti, progressive. The demonstrations that the imperialist media vilifies are progressive anti-imperialist demonstrations. If they are loving demonstrators, in spite of the fact that they're super violent, it says something about the political or social character of those demonstrations that makes them tolerable to these same oppressive forces uh, who have created so much destruction here in the United States and in the countries you mentioned.
0: Well, I've been speaking with Brian Becker, National Coordinator of the Answer Coalition. Thanks for joining me again today, Brian.
2: It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can find out how to contact us, support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, like us on Facebook, Twitter, under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under WPFWOnTheGround. Thanks to our Patreon community for your support and encouragement. And thanks to all of those who came out for our ongoing fifth anniversary celebration last weekend. But the party's not over, go to onthegroundshow.org to find out more about supporting our anniversary. The music we played this hour included Hugh Massaquila. If there's anybody out there, our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. I'll be at the Tacoma Park Street Festival in Tacoma Park, Maryland on Sunday, October 6th. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.